Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, I know what keeps Boeing flying higher, and that is the Boeing MAX, which has been cleared to fly by the FAA. George Ferguson, let's bring you in, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You know, what, 20 months in the making, and there were a few hurdles along the way, but 20 months, is is that a good enough time frame? Is that sort of reasonable? Uh, Boeing would have opted for a much shorter time frame, so I don't know. Hopefully... things like the max grounding don't become uh, regular occasions. So we have, uh, I guess, timing for it. Uh, I I think Boeing, again, would have wanted to be much shorter. And and frankly, I think if if they would have been uh, more focused on the problem in earlier days, it it wouldn't have taken as long. George, what does it mean from a cash perspective here to get this thing approved? It's my understanding that Boeing doesn't get paid until they deliver the aircraft. Yeah, so you know, we think that what this uh, could provide is, the upper, is a chance for Boeing to be cash positive in 2021. Uh, you know, what, what we're uh, we're anticipating is Boeing could deliver up to 30 maxes a month, so probably deliver maybe 360 airplanes next year. Uh, I think you'd need to see uh, China uh, authorize the airplane and, and Chinese airlines be willing to take some airplanes because uh, Chinese air travel is bouncing back faster than any around the world. Boeing has 450 of these airplanes on the ground right now. We've, we estimate the cash value of those airplanes, besides sort of deposits they've already received from airlines, is uh, is north of $12 billion. So from a cash generation standpoint, this this really changes, uh, this changes the cash outlook of Boeing. How many were ordered? How many will be delivered? And how many orders were canceled, George? Uh, so, so we've seen some cancellations. I don't have all those numbers sort of right at the tip of my fingers here, but sure. uh, we've seen some cancellations, but largely from lessors. Uh, lessors are usually the people that cancel if they have any sort of out because lessors buy airplanes in the hopes that there's not going to be enough airplanes in the world and they can come in when they when they buy speculative and they come in and they offer those airplanes to airlines that are in need of lift. That world just doesn't exist for the next bunch of years. And so if you're a lessor and you had a shot to cancel, you did. We're more concerned about deferrals, right? Airlines will definitely ask Boeing to slow down deliveries uh, to the airlines. You don't see that. Um, you know, and sort of as cancellations because those are quiet discussions they're having behind behind the scenes. And but we know those are going on. We've heard uh, even companies like Southwest pushing out some of their um, deliveries, and that's why we think you know if, if Boeing could deliver 30 a month of maxes uh, in 2021, that still would be a little bit less than uh, sorry, a little bit more than half of what they're optic delivery rates would have been back in 2019 when they were planning to go to 57. So the the pain is is still large. The the industry is nowhere near sort of those heady days of 2019, 2018. But again, I think the the reauthorization gets them back into the business of delivering their most important cash generating airplane, which which is very important. Uh, George, you mentioned China. Where are we in terms of, or where is Boeing in terms of getting approval to fly in China? Because you mentioned their air tra- traffic is coming back uh, more so than the rest of the world. 
So we haven't seen any reports out of the Chinese authorities about um, what they're ready to uh, whether they're ready to let the Max fly again in China, uh, and and I suspect that this, this part of this question may be wrapped around trade issues as well, right? You know, China and the U.S. not really uh, very happy with each other right now on on the trade front, and so I think one of the things we're looking at is as a as a um, the president presidential administration looks like it's going to change in Washington. You could have a, a Biden presidency uh, is a potential rapprochement with uh, the U.S. and China that could allow uh, airplanes to start get delivered back into China. You, you remember there's a there's a China trade deal that was signed by the Trump administration. Uh, the Chinese don't look like they were fulfilling the purchases uh, that uh, they said they would in 2020. seems impossible for them to do it now. We also wonder if that trade deal might not get sort of re-energized and pushed a year. And, and that as well could be could be a spur to get uh, more airplanes delivered into China. The Chinese will absolutely need to be taking Boeing airplanes to meet the, the terms of that trade deal. But right now that trade deal is in some sort of limbo land. Sarah Pontiac, who is still with us in studio, the Chinese yuan is trading offshore at 655.70. We've literally seen it fall off a cliff in the last you know, few weeks. It was at 7, but higher than 7, 720 at uh, some point earlier this year. What's behind this? What are strategists saying? Right, we really have. The lowest since about June of 2018, just to put this in historical perspective. What strategists are saying is that some of this does have to do with the outcome of the presidential election. Sure, we are still dealing with a contested election, but the idea that you're going to have a Biden presidency and a return more so to geopolitical status quo and where we still might have some tensions back and forth with U.S. and China, even on the trade front, it likely will not look like it did under the President Trump administration. So that is really coming to gear on this. Also just the fact that if we look at the Chinese economy, we have seen a lift lately. They do seem to have gotten the virus under control more so than Western countries like Europe and the US as well. That could be playing playing a role too. But mostly what I typically hear is bringing it back to geopolitical tensions and the results of the election too. Hey, George, longer term for Boeing here, what's the hit to, you know, their reputation in the marketplace, their competitive position in the marketplace? I mean, I know it's essentially a duopoly, Airbus and and Boeing, but has some permanent or maybe at least some long-term competitive damage been done to the Boeing company and its products? I think for for sure for the next bunch of years, you know, this hurts from a reputational standpoint. Uh, I guess in time, sort of, it seems like all things fade. You know, I think a bunch of years ago, before the Max, with the NG and the Airbus uh, CEO, for those of us uh, that do inside baseball on uh, on airplanes, that's the that's the immediate predecessors to the latest airplanes. The the 737 looked like it had a slight advantage over the old Airbus CEO. Uh, they had a couple extra seats and their efficiency seemed to be a little bit better. And so they looked like they had a slight advantage. In the world we're in now, it looks like Airbus might have a slight advantage in, in the narrow-body air, aircraft uh, arena with the A320neo, which has larger fan sizes, a little better efficiency, and is prepared to take those bigger fan sizes in the future. So I think Boeing's at a point where they really need to think about the competitiveness of the 737, and they need to guard their reputation. And so uh, I think that they got to start thinking about how they're going to 
come forth with a new narrow body 737 and one that can be uh, maybe get another leg up on Airbus. Of course, Airbus won't let that uh, go without a without a fight, I'm sure. George, who's responsible for getting people into the plane? Is it the airlines who've already ordered and, and used the 737 MAX or is it up to Boeing to put a campaign into the works that makes it seem like it's a great airplane to ride on? I think it'll be both, right? There's some airlines that are absolutely Boeing customers. Uh, they they fly all Boeing fleets. It's absolutely in their interest to get customers comfortable with the Max. They're buyers of the Max. To even switch to the to an Airbus product would would sort of you know create a lot of upheaval. At these companies, companies like Southwest, companies like Ryanair, but at the same time, Boeing, even though they're one removed from the flying public, uh, they they really need to bolster the reputation of this air, of this airplane. And the airplane has really been reviewed extensively by the FAA. I think they've got to bring that forward to, to the consumer. And the training regimen for getting pilots back in the cockpit on the MAX is a little more intense than it would be for a, a typical, what we call type rating, um, type, similar type rated airplane. And so I think Boeing, Boeing and the airlines need to bring forth this, this information so the flying public can be comfortable flying the airplane again, and they don't suffer any demand problems because of that. Hey, sir, I just wonder more broadly, what do you think are the kind of next catalysts for investors? What are the investors looking at now? We've kind of gotten through, you know, some, we've gotten through earnings. We kind of know where the Fed is. We've got some idea of the vaccine timing. What do you think the market's looking at? I'd say as of right now, likely what's going to be the next catalyst for any maybe short-term moves in the market would be the development and the trajectory of COVID-19 cases and restrictions. We have not gotten to the point where restrictions have really been ramped up to the point where we're going to see a drastic effect on an economy like we saw back in March, uh, but what's going to happen as we get into the winter months? Granted, though, you are able to look further out knowing that there is a vaccine there, and on that front, that means there are very high expectations expectations for a growth rebound, not just on the economic front, but when it comes to earnings too. If you look at expectations for 2021 profits, Q1, Q2, granted you have much easier comps because we saw numbers just fall off a cliff this year in the wake of the coronavirus and that first quarantine. But if we do not see markets, especially cyclical areas of the market, because that's where the most year over year growth is really expected. If that doesn't live up to expectations, that could certainly provide a catalyst for some volatility and, and some moving around. Around here. And a point that we got uh, inventories, crude oil inventories that came in much, much less than expected. The market was looking for 1.24 million barrels. We got 769 and that's giving another little boost to the price of oil, Sarah, which is now, you know, close to $42 a barrel. But we're really just in this range. And I guess OPEC is the next catalyst there. Yeah, absolutely. When we look at oil, it's pretty amazing to see. We have a third day of gains today. WTI crude oil up more than 1%, also on track for a third week of gains. So we have seen this sustained move higher. Right now, we look at WTI crude oil, 41.86 a barrel. That's the highest since September. So we have not been able to completely break out, but it does seem as though OPEC and its allies do at least... They're aware of the issues right now on the table as it relates to demand. However, again, there is just plenty of optimism, okay. and the focus really here is on, that, on, is on that positive side. Okay. Hey, Sarah Pontek, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate your thoughts on the markets from a cross-asset perspective. Sarah Pontek, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg News, and George Ferguson, senior aerospace and airlines analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We get up to speed on the Boeing news. We appreciate you. 
We've heard a lot about SPACs this year. They've become the vehicle of choice for people to raise and then hopefully look for a company to go public with. Well, one of those companies that went public via a successful SPAC yesterday was EOS, and it is trading today on the NASDAQ. EOSE is the ticker, and it's up more than 11% right now. So EOS Energy Enterprises is the full title, and the CEO is Joe Mastrangelo. So, Joe, explain to us first what EOS Energy Enterprises does. Yeah, uh, so thanks for the time today. We're, we're a stationary energy storage uh, company that focuses on helping take out the intermittency of renewables in the power grid, uh, microgrid applications, and eventually a residential um, system. Wait, so just to clarify, do you mean like a battery company? Yes, we're, ba- we're a battery company that, that we build um, uh, zinc bromine-based batteries for uh, stationary energy storage. All right, so zinc-based energy storage battery, that's different from what I think most of the market's used to, which is um, you know, a lithium-ion battery. Tell us the difference between the two and maybe the advantages of, of your product versus the tr- traditional, I guess, lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, so, so f- first off, um, you start off with the, with, the, with the raw materials that go into the battery, which are all Earth abundant, no conflict materials, no rare earths, no toxic materials in the battery, widely available, so very limited um, supply chain constraints. The battery is not only uh, sustainable throughout its lifetime, where it can operate from temperatures as low as minus 20 degrees C up to 50 degrees C, so very wide operating range, without any um, incremental heating or cooling. And then lastly, at the end of its useful life in 15 to 20 years, the battery is fully recyclable back back to its original components to be reused in something else. Sounds pretty phenomenal. Why did you decide to go public via a SPAC and, you know, who's involved in the SPAC? Yeah, so, so, so it's a great question. So we, um, we're, we worked with uh, B. Riley Financial. Uh, we went through the, you know, we, were, we were in the midst of a fundraising round and had met with uh, the team from B. Riley, and we really found a good, a good mesh-up in what they saw, the strategy of our company and the capital that we could get to, to grow the company. So as we looked at the options in front of us, this was the best way for us to get the story out about how we're going to grow the company for the future, have a partner and sponsor who believed in the strategy of the company, and coming out of the SPAC now, we have enough capital to grow the company over the long term and take it to profitability and cash flow positive. So, Joe, when people think of you know battery storage, sometimes they think of Tesla. Is Tesla a mm-hmm. potential customer of yours or a competitor of yours? How do they? How do you kind of position yourself vis-a-vis Tesla? Yeah. So, so when you think about Tesla, um, we we both compete in the same space. It's a it's a very wide space when you look at the applications um, that we go after. You know, when you think about lithium ion, which is the core of the of the of the Tesla product and other and other competitors out there, very competitive when you, when you're under two hours of discharge from the, from the system. So using the system to charge up and then putting that power back on the system in zero to two hours, lithium ion is highly competitive. The way our company was founded and the way our technology was developed over the last 12 years is we do longer duration discharge. So we can do anything from three hours up to 12 hours of energy usage, and when you get above the four-hour mark, we're highly competitive against any other technology out in the marketplace. It's a sort of a, it's almost like a series of churches, right? You, you, you belong to one or you belong to the other. You, you sort of pick your poison and that's it, right? Well, I mean, look, the energy, the energy industry is always going to have a mix of technologies to be able to deliver the demands that, you know, that, we, all, that we all expect from modern life. 
and we're one of those technologies that fits into a very large segment of the market. So I think you could see both. I don't. I don't think it's it's an it's uh it's an either or. It's an and. Mm. So, Joe, who gives a sense of kind of who your customers are? Right. So, so we 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 have systems in the field now with um, some of the pre- pre- um, preeminent utilities in the United States. We have test systems with Duke Energy. Uh, we're we're working with PSE and G. So we work across the utilities landscape. We also do work with um, renewable renewable power companies. A company called Hecate. We just announced a, a large uh, agreement with them a couple weeks ago. And then we also do microgrid applications. You know, we're we're doing a microgrid application working through the Shell Foundation in Nigeria, where we really see the technology being great in that application because of the safety and operability of it to be able to power remote villages and be able to bring power to, to the people in the world that don't have it. Joe, final question. We don't have much time, but what will you do with the money raised sure. in particular? So uh, go from uh, a company that has a proven product and a manufacturing process to a scaled company. So a lot will go into scaling up our factory in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we're going we're gonna to increase the, the throughput of that facility, building out our team both on the commercial side and also on the project side. And then lastly, financing projects where we look at this as a big opportunity to be able to accelerate the application of energy storage in the marketplace by bringing our own right. financing um, to the projects. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Congratulations on getting public. Joe Mastrangelo, CEO of EOS Energy Enterprises that went uh, public yesterday via a SPAC. Doug Duncan, Chief Economist yep. at Fannie Mae, to talk a little bit about these housing numbers, which have been on fire today and, and also most recently. So, Doug, talk to us. How do we continue to have such demand when people are, you know, out of a job to the tune of 10 million of them? The job loss has been heavily concentrated in uh, work categories, which are hourly wage workers in the service sector, uh, particularly in areas that are discretionary spending by middle and upper income households. Those uh, workers tend to be more heavily concentrated in apartments as opposed to ownership. So if, if you are uh, a person with a salary, uh, and that job has been stable. You're not in the service sector. With the interest rates where they are, this is a great time to consider locking in a long-term, very low, historically low interest rate and, and buy a house. So, Doug, are we revising up our view of, or your your view of kind of just housing starts and, and just uh, the whole housing market? Because it just seems to be an extraordinarily bright spot in an otherwise very difficult economy. Yeah, there's two or three things going on. Uh, one is the millennials are at peak home buying, and they tend to be more in the salaried space. So they're younger. They've been uh, building families. They're now thinking about buying homes, moving out of apartments. Second one is that uh, to the extent that you live in an apartment in a densely populated area and you have concerns about the contagion related to the virus, this might be a great time to be moving toward the suburban uh, markets and less density. And then the third is if you're an older household that already owns a home and could conceptually sell that house, you might not be so anxious to do that today because people would come to visit the house, walk through carrying the virus, and you might be in a higher risk category. So the supply in the existing homes is actually at historic lows, leading to very strong starts and construction of new homes to meet that shift in demand. 
Are we beginning to see that slow down? Was today the first sign of that where we saw building permits come in flat for October, much less than the 1.4% anticipated? And September's number was revised lower to 4.7%. So building permits, obviously the first sign of future building. Yes, I think that's an, that's an accurate assessment. One thing to recall is that the virus really hit the economy in the March-April timeframe, which is typically the peak home buying season in the year. So we moved what's the normal cyclical peak back in the year to the, to the uh, late summer and early fall. So we've been riding that uh, shift of the, of the demand cycle. And now I think we're starting to see the work off of that, to, to your point about the, the flattening out of permits. Doug, how's the, the mortgage origin, origination market today? Are lenders writing mortgages? How tough is it to get a mortgage? How's that looking? Well, the criteria to qualify for a mortgage uh, have been tightened with the concern about employment characteristics, but not, uh, not dramatically tightened. And the volumes of business that are being done are going to be all-time records. From a nominal dollar perspective, we expect in 2020, $4.1 trillion of mortgage production. Uh, and, of course, a lot of that, about $2.6 trillion of that will be refinancing uh, activity. That is people who already have a mortgage who are taking advantage of these historically low interest rates to refinance it at a lower rate. That will continue into next year. The total numbers will fall off, but they'll still be at very high levels. And one thing to bear in mind is even if 10-year Treasury rates were to move up, which they have a little bit recently, the spreads in that uh, market suggest that lenders could narrow the spreads and hold mortgage rates where they are, uh, which would continue uh, the, uh, the benefits to consumers in, through next year. Doug, what's happening to credit quality out there? Well, the, the one question on the credit quality front is, uh, relates to the forbearances for those who do have a mortgage and did lose a job or saw serious truncation of their income through uh, reduced overtime or bonuses. So there was an initial surge in people who applied for the very easy terms to take forbearance. Actually, a lot of those folks were doing that on a precautionary basis. Um, we've done some surveys of them, and they said, well, we, we took it because it was easy to take on the chance that we might lose our job, but now the job seems to be stable, so we've, we've become current again. There's still a segment of borrowers who are in forbearance, have lost jobs or truncated income. That we will start to see play out in the first quarter of next year, and in many cases, if they can't bring it current, the loan will be modified to payment terms that they can uh, that they can maintain. Doug, thank you for the update. Uh, housing, of course, always on our mind. Doug Duncan, Chief Economist at Fannie Mae, joining us there. Well, as we all work from home, learn from home, it's putting uh, additional focus on cybersecurity. And our next guest says that quantum technology is going to accelerate uh, that concern. Alan Meckler Managing partner for Asimov Ventures, also CEO of 3DR Holdings, uh, joins us here. Alan, talk to us about quantum technology and kind of what that is and what that may mean for cybersecurity going forward. It's quite complicated. <laughs> okay, well, we've got a whole won't. seven minutes here. 
Yes. Well, the um, <laughs> the 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 quantum revolution is upon us. Uh, I should say quantum technology revolution. The word quantum could be obviously used for a lot of things, but uh, quantum computing and quantum technology are going to be able to do calculations and solve problems in, for industries, um, but also will cause problems because the computing power is um, almost science fiction-like in terms of a, how much it can do compared to the largest uh, supercomputer today. And uh, what that means, of course, from cybersecurity and uh, particularly financial security, uh, keywords, passwords, or whatever, uh, cyber, cyber uh, there, there's tremendous worry about what, what could happen uh, when, when these computers, so to speak, come online, which still is several years away. What, what about now? What is the situation right now? Well, right now, uh, there technically is not a quantum computer uh, as what is in terms of what's projected. The, the basis for defining a quantum computer or the ability for it to do whatever it needs you want it to do is based on the number of qubits, which um, is a measurement um, in terms of what bits were to, bits are to a computer today, which I think we're all familiar with. Qubits are what uh, are the equivalent uh, for a quantum computer. It is estimated that at least a thousand qubits would have to be created or programmed from any manufacturer for a quantum computer to be online and ready to go. At this particular point in time, a company like IBM, for example, um, has, uh, as it's working towards creating a quantum computer, uh, has about 50 to 60 that have been uh, have been um, programmed. Um, now, one can do things with that, but uh, in, until you get to a thousand, which uh, probably, according to IBM and uh, recently chatting with Bob Souter, who, who runs the program up at IBM, uh, that's probably projected for them 2023. Um, to get to uh, a uh, situation where a quantum computer would be uh, totally online, ready to go, we're projecting 2000, uh, 2030, so, you know, 10 years from now. So, Alan, what we've seen over the last, I don't know, decade or so, but certainly accelerated over the last four years is, is kind of a cold, a technology cold war between China and the West. As it relates to quantum technology, is that something that, is, is it also developing upon those lines? Actually, I'd say it's terrifying um, in terms of uh, what China is supposedly doing compared to what we're doing or other uh, so-called Western countries, um, neutral countries around the world. Uh, we obviously don't have complete information about uh, China's investment, but we do know that they have created the equivalent of campuses or universities, uh, think tanks, just just to study what 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 they can do or what could be done with quantum. Uh, my understanding is they've invested. Uh, well north of five to ten billion dollars already 
and are literally driven to uh, dominate in this area. And unfortunately, um, forgetting whatever your politics, my politics, or anyone's politics might be, instead of um, worrying about, um, you know, which side of the uh, fence you're on, a Democrat, Republican, this country should be worrying more about what the Chinese are doing in uh, quantum technology, and and, uh, we should really get cracking. Uh, I know that... uh, the Biden administration has already announced uh, several hundred million dollars towards uh, further research into quantum. Um, but uh, that's a really uh, just a pittance in terms of what's probably needed compared to what the Chinese are, because whoever has dominance in quantum or gets there first uh, could really raise havoc uh, with um being able to crack computer systems, financial uh, networks, and and the like. So needless to say, that's pretty terrifying if, in fact, the Chinese uh, have uh, saved years and years and years in developing uh, fighter planes, stealth technology. Just think what they can do if they come up with uh, this next type of uh, computing power, um, which they will at this point, way before we will in this country. Well, you have to tell us what you're invested in so we can watch out for the future. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's definitely, uh, I, 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 as I say, the press hasn't really picked this up yet at all. No, no. What companies are you invested in, um, Alan? Well, um, in terms of uh, myself, uh, I, I, uh, I do two things. Uh, I create uh, uh, research in this area called uh, Inside quantum technology, uh, and we also do events. We just had an event with uh, 600 people from 30 countries around the world with uh, 70 speakers. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, investing, the, the investing that I do on a venture capital basis, uh, it's a different thing for quantum because any, anyone is, and, and there are hundreds of millions being invested every month in this, uh, in this, in this area. But uh, you really have to look out 10, you know, 10, 15, 20 years if you make an investment in venture capital. Uh, so while I cover this from a media perspective, I'm not really investing, although certainly I'm, I'm watching because uh, my horizon is more like five years or seven years, not 10, 15, 20 years. All right. And uh, for anyone interested, there is a list of the types of companies that you do invest in, in terms of private equity and sort of an exit in five to 10 years at your website, asimovventures.com. Our thanks to you for joining us today. Fascinating discussion there with Alan Meckler of Asimov Ventures and uh, decades of experience in the most modern elements of computing and computing technology. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.